This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays filling in for Gil Gross. On this edition of America Changed Forever, a year later, has America changed after the death of George Floyd? Coming up, here from a Minneapolis City Council member who explains what defund the police means to him. Having four armed officers go respond to a man who supposedly used a fake $20 bill probably doesn't require that level of armed response. Also, the Los Angeles County District Attorney, who is coming under fire. He's part of a wave of prosecutors across the country who are shaking things up and who says that he was moved by the people from different backgrounds coming together after George Floyd's death. For the first time in my, in my history, I saw middle-class white people, not, not the liberal, you know, leftists, but, you know, middle-of-the-road white Americans walking and demonstrating side-by-side side with somebody holding a, a BLM flag. But a pollster that we will speak with has numbers that show just how divided America is when you mention police shootings of blacks and Black Lives Matter. The challenge we're, that we are in now is that it's not just that we disagree on the issues, but I think we're losing the ability to even have a common vocabulary to disagree over so that we're just having debates that are running completely past one another. Also ahead, the author of a book that examines how what some people believe divides us can actually bring us together. When it comes down to it, we have so much more in common than what divides us. And so I began to see what we can gain, all of us as a people, if we have each other's backs and if we come together across lines of race to make decisions about our common future. But first, my conversation with Los Angeles DA, George Gascone. He was elected with an agenda for sweeping criminal justice reform. You'd think that he was declaring war in L.A. because his critics are blasting his ideas and some are threatening to get him booted out of office. George Gascon, Los Angeles County District Attorney, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Jeff. So when you took office last year, you made it clear that uh, you were not going to seek the death penalty, not prosecuting juveniles as adults, ending cash bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies, and no longer filing enhancements that you know, the kind of enhancements that trigger stiffer sentences for certain crimes. And this is what you campaigned on. So how do you do all these things that you talked about doing and not be called soft on crime or ignoring public safety or, or victims? Yeah, so, you know, there are other things that we have done too, Jeff. Uh, you know, we also created a, a victim's advisory board and we brought in survivors of violent crime to the table to help us begin to create a more trauma-informed care for our victims. Uh, we've also uh, created uh, what we call COVER, which is community, the Community Violence Reduction Division, which is actually based on the public health model 
uh, where we're deploying prosecutors now in three parts of the city of LA, eventually throughout the county, to work with the, the Department of Social Services, our health department, community, the police, and ourselves to address the root causes of, of violence, especially the violence that may be related to gang activity, understanding that some people will be arrested and prosecuted, but taking the more holistic way of our work. We've also worked with the county's alternative to incarceration uh, office, which is an office that was funded by the county board of supervisors uh, in order to provide alternatives for people with mental health problems and substance dependence and providing for diversion and, and an immediate warm handoff to services. So, so we are very focused on addressing the causes of violence and the causes of crime in our community. But we're also trying to follow science and data. And what is very clear, and you know, we have uh, gone over this many, many times with many members of our community. In fact, we have posted on our website uh, a, a large body of knowledge around the things that do not work. We know that, that, for instance, lengthy periods of incarceration in most cases do not work. We know that when you prosecute low-level offenses aggressively and you incarcerate people for short periods of time uh, for low-level offenses, you increase their criminogenic factors and you actually create a, a scenario where they're more likely to commit crimes uh, in the future. Uh, we know that, that the criminal legal system makes mistakes. Uh, you know, national figures are somewhere between four and five percent of all of our convictions end up being uh, convictions of an innocent person. But if you execute someone, there is no way to reverse that. So it doesn't create safety. It's very expensive. It's racist on this application. It's irreversible. So you can actually address community safety without doing the death penalty, without prosecuting kids as adults, without criminalizing the mentally ill, um, addressing violence through a public health lens. So we, we are actually very focused on getting the things that are gonna create, create sustainable models of safety for our community, as opposed to continuing to do the same thing that we've always done and expecting a different result. If you look nationwide right now, we are suffering through an epidemic of violence. And it really doesn't matter whether you're in a progressive community or a conservative or or a hybrid community, we see mass shootings occurring almost on a daily basis, really across the board. We've seen violence spike uh, in you know, red states, red cities, red counties, blue counties. So really the politics of a particular jurisdiction do not seem to have any correlation with the spike in crime. So again, what we do share, whether you're in a blue county or a blue city or state or red, is that we have all as a nation have been uh, engage in this, uh, you know, prison bench uh, and punishment that hasn't worked. And what we're trying to do is move away from that and get us to a better place. You know, victimization and addressing violence is not red or blue. Is all of us want to live in a safe environment? As uh, we uh, pass the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd, and many people in law enforcement and uh, civilians alike, frankly, looking at the progress made or the progress that hasn't been made since his death. What, what is your take on that? Well, look, I mean, I think that the, the significance for me of the George Floyd murder was how graphic it was and how it happened in, in our living rooms and the impact that it had on white America, right? I think if you talk to black America, they would tell you that George Floyd 
unfortunately was one of many, right? And, and since George Floyd, we have seen other African-American men being killed by police in, in, in questionable uh, situations. Uh, but I think what made the, the difference in the case of George Floyd was that it was so in your face, it was so graphic, you know, it's nine and a half minute video, this man slowly dying and you see, unfortunately, the officer, uh, you know, lacking any kind of human, um, human compassion, right? And I think for the first time, white America was confronted with a problem that, that has been so, so prevalent in, in black America for, for so many years. And it created a different conversation. You know, for the first time in my, in my history, I saw middle-class white people, not, not the liberal, you know, leftists, but, you know, middle of the road, white Americans walking and demonstrating side by side with somebody holding a, a BLM flag. I've never seen that before in my life. Uh, and I think that that was a, that's significant. My worry and my concern is that while there's a historical opportunity here to, to create a, a better world for all of us, this window's closed very quickly. And I, and I fear that the window for reform could close if we are not bold enough uh, to to move through that opening, if you will, and and, and take us into a different place. And, and by that I mean, you know, creating alternatives to to the way that we achieve safety in our community and and reducing the the impact of racism and systemic racism that has impacted the criminal justice system since the beginning of time for us in this country. Um, and so for me, the glass is half full. It's, it's half full in the sense that I think we have a historic opportunity uh, where things are occurring and conversations are being had that, that would not have occurred before George Floyd. Um, but the, it's half empty because I worry that this is getting sucked into the vortex of, of, of politics of the right and the left. Um, and people are, are choosing sides not based on what is good for the country and what is good for all of us, but based on their politics, and that worries me a great deal. George Gascon, Los Angeles District Attorney, thank you. When we come back, I'll be joined by author Heather McGee, who says racism is costing all of us. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever. Welcome back to America Change Forever. Heather McGee has an interesting take on racism. She believes it is the common denominator of some of American society's most vexing problems, not just affecting black Americans, but also affecting white Americans. I wanted her to explain how she came to that conclusion. Heather McGee, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So your your book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Why did you write it, and what's the message that you want people to take from it? Well, I wrote The Sum of Us after nearly two decades working in economic policy, trying to bring research and data about what was going on around kitchen tables across the country, how much inequality was growing and economic security was increasing while social mobility was stagnating. And I was bringing that data to policymakers and hoping that they would make just better policy decisions, raise the minimum wage, invest in in common solutions to our common problems like unaffordable health care and rising student debt and 
the lack of childcare and other such things. And, you know, sometimes we made progress, but a lot of times it was falling on deaf ears. And so I set out on a journey across the country to talk to hundreds of Americans and figure out what was really holding us back from being a country where everyone could reach the American dream. And what I discovered was that in many ways in racism, in our politics, in our policymaking, in a way that's, you know, kind of a little bit different than the way we normally think about racism, like a bad person doing a bad thing to someone they don't like because of their skin color, but sort of a deeper political and policy racism is actually what's holding us back collectively as a nation. And therefore, racism has a cost for everyone. And can you can you give me an example, a contemporary example that uh, sort of proves your your point? Sure. Although I, I do think it's important always to, to see a little bit of history to see sort of how we got to this place. But basically what we have right now is a country where 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class, while 40% of adult workers are paid too little to meet their basic needs. And yet when you look at the simple policy solution, raising the minimum wage, there's a pretty big racial disparity between what voters support raising the minimum wage to a living wage. White voters are much less likely to support it, even though white voters are the largest group of people making under a living wage and being paid poverty wages. And so we have across many economic issues, these disparities, 20 to 30 percentage points on average between what I would say would be sort of the the common sense public interest answer to deal with problems, uh, the support that white Americans seem to show for that versus black and brown Americans. And the sociologists who dig deeper into this question really see that a, a sort of racialized view of government, the idea that government um, is is untrustworthy and that it's specifically sort of coddling people of color is often behind some of the, the reluctance to use government to solve problems that are in the in the public interest, and that ultimately it's this zero-sum worldview, this way of thinking that says that progress for people of color has to come at white people's expense. Um, a dollar more in a black family's pocket must mean a dollar less in a white family's pocket. That zero-sum is not true economically, and yet it's a, a predominant worldview among white Americans. It's, it's really interesting. Um... You know, being in Washington and, and following politics closely, oftentimes you see people voting against their own best interest just because of the messaging that they're hearing from politicians on either side. Um, but they're voting against their own best interest. That's that's often the case. I mean, one of the big kind of examples that I give in the book that stands in for a lot is is what happened to really lavishly funded public swimming pools in the middle of the last century. Um, in the 1930s and 40s, the country went on a, a building boom of public amenities. It was part of the New Deal era, and it was public parks and schools and libraries and pools. And these were pools that could hold over a thousand swimmers at a time. It was sort of this kind of uniquely American government commitment to uh, the standard of living of, of its people. And it was part of a, a broader ethos that included all the rest of the New Deal, things like Social Security, massive government subsidies for housing and the creation of uh, subsidies around mortgages to make working class people able to afford a home with no down payment and affordable monthly payments. And the GI Bill, right, was put a generation to college and then to 
even more home ownership in virtually everything I just described, uh, from the housing to the swimming pools, was segregated and for whites only. And so those policies created all these public goods that created a really big, strong middle class, but with an asterisk around it being for white people only for the most part. And, and when the civil rights movement empowered Black families to say, hey, those are our tax dollars. We want our kids to swim too. Many towns across the country drained their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. They actually drained out the water, backed up truckloads of dirt, paved it over. I traveled to Montgomery, Alabama and walked the grounds of what used to be a thousand plus swimmer pool, but had been closed to avoid integration in 1959, and they kept the entire Parks and Recreation Department of the whole city closed for a decade rather than integrate it. And so I talk about drained pool politics in The Some of Us, this idea that government used to be, in fact, extremely popular among white Americans. Uh, you know, all of the government programs that helped create the white middle class were extremely popular, but they were done in a way where the government was also communicating that there was something wrong with black people and that they should be excluded. And once the government sort of changed its tune and started saying, you know, public goods are for all of the public, in many ways, politically, the majority of white Americans turned their backs on the idea of government. Uh, and you saw the massive political shift after Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts. He would become the last Democrat to win the majority of white voters. Um, running for president. And and I don't say that to be partisan. I say that because it was a, a real economic shift from the idea, from the formula that had created the white middle class, uh, high wages, high levels of unionization, taxation on corporations and the wealthy, plowing that back into these kind of structures of opportunity and public goods like free college. And then once our country became more diverse, the majority of white Americans started opposing a lot of those programs and government spending and taxation. Um, and, and my point in the book is that it's ultimately cost all of us, right? The shift from free college because the government picked up the tab to this sort of debt for diploma system we have disproportionately impacts black families who are, have lower household wealth because of that, the, you know, the, the redlining and exclusion that I was referring to in the creation of the middle class <clears throat> in the early 20th century. But six out of 10 white students have to borrow now too. Mm, very interesting. You bring up Montgomery, Alabama, which is where my family is originally from, Montgomery and Birmingham. And so I know the, the history there uh, uh, quite intimately. Um, and given your book and what you argue in your book, what are your thoughts about this year since George Floyd's death? You know, in many ways, um, this has been a watershed year in modern American history, where you saw the largest social demonstrations in the history of the country, uh, at least 26 million people taking to the streets to, to protest in support of Black lives and against police brutality and demanding that our country live up to its ideals. Um, you've seen across the country many more white Americans being willing to listen and, and, and think differently about uh, widespread stereotypes and sort of justifications for the racial inequalities we see. And most importantly, you've seen many of us of all races wanting to reclaim our history. You know, we are a very young country. We honestly don't have that much history to know. And yet, for political reasons, um, 
you know, people have really robbed us of our history. We don't know the basic facts about how the middle class was created, about how our cities were developed, about how much Black wealth has been systematically destroyed, uh, either through things like the Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, which wiped out Black Wall Street, uh, to just the idea that when the government created the fixed rate mortgage that has, you know, totally transformed American lives, it included a clause that said, do not lend to black neighborhoods, right? We don't know that. We've been robbed of that. And so I think that this year has seen a real hunger among all of us to know our history so that we're not repeating it, so that we're not honestly vulnerable to the same kinds of manipulations and forces. Throughout the Some of Us, I talk about how this zero-sum worldview is really a story that's been sold for profit among the greedy, self-interested, narrow elite who have wanted to divide working-class people and middle-class people by color and pit us against one another when we really are, really, when it comes down to it, we have so much more in common than what divides us. And so I began to see in my journey this thing I called the solidarity dividend, which is what we can gain, all of us as a people, if we have each other's backs and if we come together across lines of race to make decisions about our common future. When we come back, more of my discussion with Heather McGee. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to America Change Forever. As we continue our conversation with Heather McGee, the author of the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Many white Americans have embraced the social justice movement in the last year based on what they saw in that uh, troubling video. And so I wonder, uh, when you factor that in with this younger generation, you know, I've, I have teenage kids who you know, they are more open-minded than my generation was and more inclusive than my generation was. And so I wonder, are we getting closer to what you envision as a solution in your book? I think we are. I mean, I think that um, we are seeing a, a real uprising of a multiracial, anti-racist, majoritarian coalition, a governing majority that waded through high water in November and then again in January to reject the politics of divide and conquer and racial scapegoating while, you know, the only real policies that happened were massive tax cuts for the wealthy and an attempt to take away people's health care, right? 
that formula of of using racial scapegoating and finger pointing in order to redistribute wealth upwards and convince white Americans that uh, you know millionaires are on their side just because they're on the same they have the same skin color um, and not because they have the same you know needs and concerns. That formula is is sort of the only playbook that's play in the playbook that's left, and it's been rejected by the majority of Americans. And so I do think that we have we are becoming a country that is more willing to find common solutions. That's not willing, frankly, to lose what made America great, right? The American dream uh, for so long has been in the, in the rear view mirror as our country has become more diverse and as our politics have shifted to uh, listening mostly to what corporations and the wealthy have to say. And, and I don't think most Americans are willing to play that game anymore, um, you know we're we're seeing really high levels of support for the uh, administration's agenda that would cut child poverty in half, that would uh, provide universal childcare for our working parents, that would uh, massively increase, uh, lo- massively lower the the cost of healthcare by increasing the the share of it that that the government picks up, um, that would make millions of new jobs and put us at the head of the clean energy revolution. This is the kind of big thinking, big problem solving that made America great, frankly, and it's going to be good for black, white, and brown people. Now, our communities are not all sort of in the same place, right? Because if you know even a little bit of history, you can see how history often shows up in your wallet, how the average black family has just 15 cents of wealth, right? Home equity, you know, savings, pensions, security, stocks and bonds for every dollar, just 15 cents for every dollar that white families have on average. And that's not because of hard work or thrift or any of the, you know, racist justifications that we often use. It's because of the policies I just described. You know, a a high school dropout who's white has more wealth on average in this country than a black college graduate. Right. So that, that's not about hard work. That's about the policies and laws that excluded black families and the compound interest that's been paying on that for just one or two generations, because uh, that's how long it's been since we stopped uh, deliberately excluding black families from from home ownership. And so I think there's more awareness of these issues now. There's more of a, of a coalition that says, you know what, we all do better when we all do better. Uh, and and I think it really is is coming. That solidarity dividend is 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 within our grasp. You know, I've lived overseas for the first half of my life. Lived here in this country in several different states, not only uh, as a youth, but uh, building my career. And when you sit down with people, as you did when you you know wrote your book and did the research for your book, uh, white, black. Uh, Hispanic, Asian, you know, you you see, if you just sit down and talk to people, we have more in common <laughs> than uh, than we don't. That's right. That's beautiful. And, and I, you know, I I've only been doing that in the course of writing with some of us. You know, I only did that for about three years, talking to Americans of every background. But that was very clear to me. It's it's our common humanity. It's our common struggle. But when you get into the quiet places, you know, on the shop floor, you know, people in the in the break room, and you're talking about what's important to you, it's your kids. It's affording their college. It's it's knowing that you can make rent. It's knowing that you can can survive. It's knowing that you are safe. And we've got it within our capacity as a nation 
to make it so that nobody knows hunger and nobody knows the fear of, of not being able to make rent. Um, and yet we continue to allow corporations to pay people poverty wages, and we continue to allow the government to be more in the business of taking care of you know, corporations and the wealthy than of the average American and people who are struggling to make ends meet. Heather McGee, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Coming up, what the polling says about America's views on police shootings and Black Lives Matter. What we're learning may surprise you. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever. Welcome back to America Change Forever. Robert P. Jones is the founder and CEO of PRRI, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to conducting independent research at the intersection of religion, culture, and public policy. He is also the author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Robbie, tell me what you are seeing in your polling uh, as it relates to a year after the death of George Floyd. Yeah, you know, we are seeing a continuation, really, of a much longer-term trend um, that goes back, really, to the founding of the Black Lives Matter movement in, in 2015. And what we basically see in the polling is um, kind of movement. If we look at the, kind of the key question uh, in, our, in our data is a question that asks uh, whether people see the killings of Black Americans by police as isolated incidents or whether they think of them as a broader pattern of how police treat African-Americans. And if we look at the isolated incident side, what we basically see is that uh, between 2015, the kind of early days uh, of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and 2018, we see um, a real shift. A majority of the country, actually, in 2015 uh, uh, saw these as merely isolated incidents. They didn't see the connection. Uh, by 2018, that number has dropped to 45%, and then it has uh, dropped another couple of points um, over the last year, uh, down to 43%. Uh, however, um, that movement hasn't been uniform. And I think that's part of the situation we find ourselves in, this kind of polarized situation along uh, really partisan, racial, and religious lines. So the groups that have not moved um, are really Republicans uh, who are just as likely today as they were five years ago to say that these events are isolated incidents. Our latest numbers from 2020 have them at eight and ten, um, saying uh, these are they see uh, police killing of African Americans as isolated incidents, and white evangelical Protestants who also have not moved over the last five years, and among them seven and ten, uh, continue to see these as isolated incidents. That's that's interesting because I think there is this perception at George Floyd's death and that disturbing video changed things. It changed the perception. He had more white Americans joining this social justice cause, but. What you're outlining here doesn't necessarily paint that picture. Well, you know, the other piece of this is salience. And we have seen that go up uh, among uh, even among white Americans. Uh, you know, at, when we've asked them about uh, the importance of uh, race relations, uh, those kinds of things that has gone up among white Americans. And, you know, this this movement across five years is, is quite significant. I mean, like, for example, among all whites, um, you know, again, five years ago, 2015, it was 65 percent of whites who said these were isolated incidents. Um, and our latest numbers today, it, it's a bare majority at 51 percent um, with a huge class divide. That's the other thing I should say here. There's a huge educational divide among white Americans. So, so uh, our latest data in 2020, at the end of 2020, after the summer protests, have six in 10 uh, white Americans with, without a four-year uh, four college degree saying they're isolated incidents compared to only four in 10 of whites with a four-year four college degree. 
Mm, that's interesting. So there there has been a 20 point or so shift. Yeah, among among whites with a four-year college degree, that's right. The, the shift has actually been 17 points uh, from 2015 uh, uh, to the present. And and that's 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 quite significant. I mean, you know, it's it's five years and on issues like this, um, that's actually a, a, a very significant movement over a five-year period. Mm, but the, the message is that independents and Democrats have one view, uh, an overwhelmingly positive view of Black Lives Matter, but Republicans are sort of entrenched in this view that, uh, that they, they don't believe it's a positive thing. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, in the Gulf, is, it really is just enormous. You know, so if we look on just the favor side, it's only 20 percent of Republicans favor. Uh, the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement compared to six and 10 independents and nine and 10 Democrats. Right. So that's a 70 point gap between Republicans uh, and, and Democrats. Um, and it's a it's a 40 point gap between Republicans and independents. What I'm getting from from your polls is that what seems to me to be happening is that people are getting different messages about what Black Lives Matter means and perhaps also what defund the police means. You know, that's absolutely correct. You can see that in the rhetoric, you know, whether it's on social media or from uh, different uh, kind of partisan leaders. Uh, we actually try to dig under this a little bit. Um, you know, so we ask people about whether they favor the goals of Black Lives Matter or the defund the police movement. But in, uh, because that phrase defund the police in particular um, has been, I think, a lot misunderstood and uh, interpreted in various ways, we actually asked people what they thought it meant. And here you can really see um, what's going on underneath these debates. Uh, so, for example, uh, we said when you hear people say they want to defund the police, which of the following best reflects what you think they mean by that? And we gave people two options. One was eliminate police departments completely. And the other one was redirect some police department funding to other social services. Now, among all Americans, um, it's 28 percent who believe it means eliminate police departments completely and 70 percent who thinks it means redirect uh, police funding to other services. Uh, but the partisan divides kind of tell the story here. Um, it's it's a majority of Republicans, 53 percent, um, who say that that they believe it means eliminate police departments completely. Only 11 percent of Democrats believe that. In fact, like nearly nine in 10 uh, Democrats believe that it uh, means redirect police funding uh, to other social services. So they're absolutely operating with very different interpretations of even you know some of these terms. Oh my goodness, Robbie! It, your numbers—they point out this big divide in this country. I mean, have we ever? How long have you been doing this? And have have you ever seen this kind of divide in opinion? Yeah. So you know, we're, we've been—we're in our twelfth year of, of running these kinds of numbers, and you know, we were already in the midst of um, pretty serious partisan polarization, but. You know, I would say that we we are in a new era um, where even, you know, the terminology, um, we, we ask similar questions about socialism, for example, right? And and Republicans and Democrats have completely different understandings of what that term means um, as well. So I, I think that the challenge we're, we're at is, is, that we are in now is that it's not just that we disagree on the issues, but I think we're losing the ability to even have a common vocabulary to disagree over um, so that we're just having debates that are running completely past one another. Obviously, we hear this talk all the time about how divided this country is. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. I mean, you know, partisan polarization is absolutely part of the reality across the board. But I, but I would note that in the exit polls uh, of the 2020 election, um, there was actually no more polarizing um, uh, question in, in the media exit polls than the question on Black Lives Matter. 
um, it actually was a bigger divide on that question than, for example, the question of abortion. Uh, you know, so there was basically an 80-20 split um, on uh, on the question of Black Lives Matter, whether you favor, uh, so in other words, if you um, supported Biden, you, you know, eight and ten uh, supported the goals of Black Lives Matter, and, and the flip side for Trump. Uh, and you only get about a 75-25 split, um, so a little bit less even on the issue of abortion. So in many ways, this issue has become uh, even more divisive than these older issues that we think of um, uh, as the kind of tip of the spear of the culture wars. It has become a wedge issue in politics that uh, politicians can use to, to move voters in a certain direction. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, the other you know piece of this is that it also kind of runs through our religious communities. So not just through you know party, but but through religion. And we, we basically see like on the same question, um, these patterns, white evangelicals sticking out kind of like Republicans do in, in the um, religious landscape, three quarters of them opposing uh, the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement. But other white Christian groups are there to a lesser extent, um, six and 10 white mainline Protestants. Uh, and uh, just a bare majority of, of white Catholics do. But this is interesting. Among whites who are not religiously affiliated, uh, 70% support uh, the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement. So there's a kind of a white Christian versus non-Christian uh, uh, divide uh, in the religious world as well. Mm, really interesting. Robbie, thank you. Thank you. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all. And tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for Smart Energy. Stay focused. Welcome back to America Change Forever. It was an emotional week in Minneapolis. I was there as Twin Cities residents and people from across the country gathered to mark the anniversary of George Floyd's death and to urge supporters to keep up the fight for change. The intersection of 38th and Chicago has been transformed in the last year from bustling neighborhood corner to a solemn square of reflection as people from all over the world pay their respects. This is where George Floyd was killed. His final moments under the knee of a police officer caught on body and cell phone cameras as onlookers pleaded for Derek Chauvin to stop. Is he breathing right now? Check his pulse. City Council member Jeremiah Ellison. There are a lot of emergencies in our city that don't necessarily require a police response and, uh, and aren't made safer by the department that we have. More people are turning to police now for help to reverse a deadly trend. According to crime figures for the beginning of the year, there was a 250% increase in gunshot victims across the city. How do you wade to funding the police when people need police help right now? Yeah, well, you know, activists have a right to call for whatever they think the city needs. You know, you, you could say that having four armed officers go respond to a man who supposedly used a fake $20 bill probably doesn't require that level of armed response. We still have work to do. Today is April Foster's birthday, but she says she will spend part of the day reflecting on George Floyd. I'm going to think about him and his life that he had, and he literally has changed the world. In the last year, 17 states 
and the District of Columbia have banned or restricted chokeholds. More than 20 Metro Police Departments saw decreases in their share of the city budget. Amid the debate about police reform, crime in Minneapolis is rising. Just feet away from the square dedicated to George Floyd, about 30 gunshots rang out. This bill of comprehensive police reform uh, to the barrage of gunfire was captured on camera during a reporter's live show. The shooting was apparently unrelated to the Floyd events. Police say one person was injured. A year ago, core boy KB Bala was preparing to open his dream restaurant in Minneapolis. This is where your restaurant used to be. Right there. But in the hours after George Floyd's death, looters smash windows and vandalize the place. One of 1,500 businesses targeted. Thieves tried to steal his safe right in front of him, adding insult to injury the very next day, an arsonist burned the building to the ground. Bala, who was a firefighter, stood helpless and defeated. That was your dream? Oh, definitely. At your lowest points, mm -hmm. did you think you were ruined? Yes. He started a GoFundMe account, and within a matter of days, 34,000 donors contributed more than $1 million. And now his dream has come to reality again with a new restaurant, thanks to the generosity of complete strangers. It's almost as if they were investing in you. Oh, yeah. And investing in your dream. Mm-hmm. 100%. How do you pay that back? Just pay it forward. You know, what can I do as a person? you know, to impact another person's life. That is this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download podcasts. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff McKays, and that is how America Change Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.